Revelation 11 verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. And Father, we just pause to pray right now just for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit that each and every one of us may need in different ways to just be attentive and responsive to the ministry of your Spirit as you speak to us through the Word of God. We offer this time to you as an act of worship in the midst of the other things that we've done now. We want to continue to worship through the attention that we give now to the Word of God, believing that you speak to us by your Spirit through its ministry. And so, Lord, we're just asking that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak now through what you have spoken in your written Word, and that we each would have an ear to hear and a heart to receive what it is you're saying to us this day. And we pray you bless our time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, from a biblical perspective, and I emphasize a biblical perspective because it's different than the world's view. From a biblical perspective, hope is the absolute assurance of coming good. You should know those six words as a description of what biblical hope is. Let me repeat that. Hope is the absolute assurance of coming good. The absolute assurance of coming good. When passing through really dark times on this earth, it greatly helps to have an anchor of hope for our soul. Part of this earthly existence, we know, is that we will journey through difficulties, hardship, and dark times, and it greatly helps to be certain and to see that there is a true light at the end of the tunnel, that there is indeed light at the end of the tunnel. This is a dark world. There are many difficult tunnels that we pass through, dark times, yet the reality we know from the scripture is that Jesus Christ is coming and the future is good. The future is indeed good. For that reason, we have hope, the absolute assurance of coming good. Romans 12 instructs us to actually be rejoicing in hope. That is celebrating being joyful in a spirit of hope, knowing that soon things will be good that ultimately things will be well and everything will work out as it should, that we can joyfully celebrate in a spirit of hope 
And really, that is what we find happening in our text this morning. They are rejoicing in hope. There's a heavenly scene of celebration that John is now brought into as he's receiving this revelation from the Lord, and they are celebrating in hope the Lord's great victory, the fulfillment of his ultimate future plans, and heaven erupts in praise regarding these things, knowing for certain from heaven's perspective that there is glorious light at the end of the dark tunnel of human history. If you look with me back as our text begins in verse 14, it tells us there in verse 14, it says, the second woe is now past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Again, we see reference both to what has noticed already happened, what's past, and the Bible also draws our attention to here that there is still something yet more coming. He says, the second woe is past, that is completed, and that's a reference to the sixth trumpet that came about in the second half of chapter 9 that brought about more unfortunate tragic judgment and cataclysmic events upon the earth and the inhabitants that are left behind on the earth as we've been looking at this time during the tribulation period where after the church and Christians have been removed from this planet and there are left behind on this earth those who have rebelled against God who have rejected Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation and are now suffering the judgment of God and the wrath of God upon this earth. Now we see in our text, verse 14, he also references there that the third woe is coming, and notice, quickly. So this is something that's not yet transpired during the time of this seven-year period of tribulation, but would come about soon as things continue to proceed through this seven-year period on the earth and into the culmination of all things of God's plan. Something, notice he says, is coming, and John adds here, it's coming quickly. The word there speaks of, of coming soon, coming rapidly, something that's going to come to pass in the near future, something John's assured that will come to pass as the culmination of all these things finally reaches its end that's not far off and happening soon. Now, in connection to that, we now see the blowing of this seventh trumpet. We've seen the prior six. It says to us in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, his Messiah, the Mashiach, the Savior, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we now come to the sounding of, it says, this seventh trumpet that will be blast in connection to the seven-year period of tribulation. Now, please take notice here. This is not what we would oftentimes refer to as the last trumpet. That would be a reference to, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is also referred to as the trumpet of God. The last trumpet, which is the trump of God or the trumpet of God, is a trumpet blast by God that brings about an instantaneous event. And that is the instantaneous and miraculous removal of Christians off the planet, the rapture, the harpazo, the catching away of the saints. And the last trump 
referred to in those passages is an instant event that removes the church instantaneously. This here in verse 15 is not that. This is, notice, the trump of an angel, and it is the seventh trumpet blast in a succession of seven different trumpets that are blown during the time of the tribulation by angels. This is something different, and this now announces the series of events that will continue to come to pass as things move forward. It will lead into, we'll now see ultimately, seven bowls of God's further judgment being poured out in great severity upon the earth during the second half of that tribulation period. Meaning, as we're going to see, the severity of the hardships being suffered on the earth are going to worsen yet still in the chapters ahead leading up to the culmination of the second coming of Christ where he returns to the earth, sets up his kingdom, the kingdom age comes to pass, and eternity future moves forward. But notice, if you would, that the first thing this trump, this seventh trump of the angel, awakens, and that's what it does, it's kind of like a trumpet blast, it awakens attention, we see here, that darkness does not triumph, that God does. And that's what we see happen in verse 15 here. When the trump is blast, this particular trumpet, the seventh angel is sounded, it doesn't describe more cataclysmic events or harsh and severe tr judgments. This final trumpet of the seven does something a little bit different. As this trumpet is blast, it awakens in the heavenly scene. John's now taken up to a heavenly scene, and it awakens to this reality that darkness will not triumph, that God ultimately does. Now, despite all that's happening on the earth, and this is the reminder of this, that even at the worst of times on this planet, it's a reminder that behind the scenes, God always still remains in control, that God is always completely sovereign. Even at the worst of times in human history, ultimately God will bring to pass his plan and his perfect will will ultimately triumph. Ephesians 1 tells us in this way, saying that God works all things according to the fulfillment of his ultimate plan. Through his power, through his will, even at the darkest of times on this earth, and things are an absolute mess on the planet during the time of the tribulation, we think they're messy now. When the presence of God's spirit in the church has been removed, there's no salt, there's no light in you and I as Christians being on this planet, having some degree of influence upon humanity, and then the judgments of God are being poured out and the rise of the Antichrist and all these things, things will be absolutely horrific on the planet. But even in the midst of all that, God's still completely in control. And God's ultimately going to bring about the triumph of everything, even bad events, human failures, rebellion, God still orchestrates his will ultimately. And in the end, God will properly bring to pass the right thing in the end ultimately. And in the eternal dimension, which verse 15 takes us now into, heaven's occupants are, it seems, almost like awakened at this last trumpet, and they now just enter into this celebratory response to that reality, that God will always be victorious that he will make all things right, he rules over all, and everything will come under the reign of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, and it will cause everything to come into full submission to him. 
But it begins, notice, as the trumpet's blast, verse 15 tells us the beginning part of it. Look at it there. It says, there were loud voices in heaven. So once again, we're taken from what's happening on the earth. John's been seeing events on the earth. And once again in this revelation, his attention is now brought into the eternal realm. And he's now seeing things that are happening in heaven around the throne of God. Though, as I said, events are miserable on the earth. Heaven's realm is experiencing the exact opposite. They're having a celebration. They're, they're rejoicing in the realities of God's total eternal picture. And as the focus shifts, we now hear in verse 15, praise and worship of many loud voices in heaven as this blast awakens them to the soon coming takeover of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and to reign to make everything right as it ought to be and the complete plan of God restoring a lost world in the way that it should. Heaven's voices erupt in praise, and at this point, this will now usher forward quickly the culmination of God's entire plan without any further delay, the redemptive plan of Jesus, where he rules and reigns on the earth, will fully be brought to closure. Now, Jesus, what he's describing here, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms, it says, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If I could ask for your patience briefly here to kind of grasp what's being described there, this is referring to how Jesus, as the Christ, as the Lord, will be coming back to reclaim and to take rightful possession of this earth and everything that belongs to him as the result, as the result of his full redemptive work. And from this point forward, that's going to begin to be expedited and nothing and no one, no matter how hard humanity tries to resist, is going to hinder or stop that process. It is absolutely going to come to pass. And heaven is so confident that this is going to be fulfilled, they shout it gratefully as if it's already a present reality up in heaven currently. They're proclaiming something that still is sort of culminating in a process, but they speak of it in a manner where they say the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, heaven is fully assured this coming takeover of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely guaranteed. They say he shall reign forever and ever. No one's going to hinder it. Nothing is going to stop it. See, we have to remember the, the, the backdrop that brings us to this reality. For many long years, Jesus has patiently waited to reclaim and to take full possession of what is rightfully his that was redeemed through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Remember, in the beginning, the Bible tells us that God gave dominion over the earth to Adam that is, to humanity. And unfortunately, what took place when sin entered the world and mankind fell by obeying the devil's temptation, when Adam sinned, he also forfeited the rights of this earth and dominion of it over to the devil who he chose to submit himself to and to obey in his rebellion to God in submitting himself to the devil's authority. And as the result of that, the scriptures teach that judicially the kingdoms of this world and rulership of this world has come under the sway of the wicked one. 
The Bible teaches Jesus himself even referred to calling the devil as the ruler of this world. That is this world system, this present earth and what's happening upon it. Satan has a degree of rulership over this world spiritually and behind the scenes, he is the one ruling over the rebellion of humanity, sinful mankind and their resistance to God and causing evil. Jesus, however, when he came to this earth as a man in a body of flesh, came to resolve that problem. Jesus came unto this earth as a man stepped in as our kinsman redeemer in the flesh, in the body of a human, to purchase back everything that Adam lost and forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And through his sinless life and his sacrificial atoning death and his resurrection, Jesus purchased back rightfully and judicially everything that humanity lost. And this is a very wonderful reality. Colossians tells us that by Jesus, the heavenly father reconciled all things to himself. That is back to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. Jesus, through his cross, it says, disarmed the principalities and the powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. If you remember back in chapter five in Revelation, we saw there, a picture of the church around the throne of God, worshiping and celebrating that very reality. It tells us they sang a new song, the church, you and I in heaven, this is one of the songs that we'll be singing. You are worthy, Lord, to take the scroll, that is the title deed to the earth, to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. See, the work of Jesus has redeemed back everything that was lost by Adam in the Garden of Eden and everything that Satan took possession and control of judicially. But the thing that we have to recognize is though Jesus has redeemed this back and rightfully it belongs to him, he has not yet taken full possession of everything that belongs to him. And that is the reason why we still see the planet in the condition that it is in. Ephesians 1 speaks of the time of the redemption of Jesus's purchased possession. He's purchased it all. He's redeemed it all, but he has not yet claimed full right and ownership by coming back and reigning here. He's paid the price. He has the title of ownership, but he's not yet come to fully claim what belongs to him. And folks, this is why we do see our present world system in the deteriorating condition and the dark and defiled way that it currently is. Ephesians 2 tells us that those who are not spiritually converted by Christ and following him, it says, are still walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That is why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 2, we do not yet see all things put under him. Ultimately, everything will come under Christ's rule and reign when he returns. But right now, there's a rebellion to the rightful king. There's a resistance. And so because of that, there are those who are being led by the spirit of the devil himself who are not converted, and they are being prompted and directed and like an unseen current spiritually, it is guiding and directing the thoughts and the ideologies and the systems and the ways of this world as Satan is still influencing that 
until the day when Jesus yet comes and fully dethrones the devil, and then we do see all things put under him. And this is what in heaven we see them celebrating the culmination of this long-awaited process where Jesus Christ as Lord is going to come, and he is going to take claim to everything that rightfully belongs to him, and he shall reign forever and ever. There will be a definite transfer of all power and all authority and all rule, and nothing and no one is going to stop it. The Bible tells us confidently in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth and under the earth, that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have an option. We can bow the knee to Jesus now in this life, and we can confess Jesus as Savior, or a person can foolishly and rebelliously in their pride refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, and then one day they will face him not as Savior, but they will face him as judge. And they will then confess and bow the knee to Jesus to their own eternal damnation. Because then they will be forced to confess that they were wrong in their life and that now they deserve the eternal punishment of separation from God forever. But every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to acknowledge the reality. And this coming takeover is so guaranteed as they erupt in praise and celebration, they say now the transference of power to our Lord and to his Christ, and he shall reign, they say, forever and ever. That reality. Verse 16 goes on to say, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell now at this point on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks Give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and have reigned. So John sees once again, we've seen them before, this representation of these 24 elders there around the throne of God, sitting on lesser thrones of victory. And as we explained earlier, when we first saw this group earlier in our study in the book of Revelation, these 24 elders sitting on these thrones of victory is a representation of the saints who've already died and gone to be with the Lord, as well as you and I, the church, who will have been raptured and caught up to meet the Lord in the air prior to the time of the tribulation. So this is a picture of you and I, the church, the glorified saints there in heaven, and look at their response when this seventh trumpet is blown and this proclamation of celebrating the wonderful culmination of the plan of Christ coming back and claiming rulership to all things. Look at the response now of the saints and pay attention because you're supposed to do this when you're up there. You're going to either way. Don't worry. You don't have to, oh, I, oh, I remember that. Trust me, you're going to be in your glorified body. But look at their response. It says, verse 16, it says, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. Three times, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 19, we see this image of the saints there in glory, you and I, responding in this way around the throne of God, falling on their faces, worshiping God. It seems that God wants us to know what heaven is like. And one of the things very clearly God makes evident that heaven is like when we're there 
is it is characterized by passionate worship of God. That he wants us to see a primary occupation of what we will be doing forever and ever and ever around the throne of God is passionately, wholeheartedly, enthusiastically worshiping God singing his praises with loud voices, expressing glory and honor to him, even at times falling on our faces in humble reverence to worship God and to give glory to God in great enthusiasm and in passion. Folks, I think when we see these things, it should be a good reminder to us, this is why we should take worshiping God now very seriously. Because this is practice for what our eternal destiny is going to be. It is one of the things that will greatly occupy what we are doing in glory. And notice, it's passionate worship. It's enthusiastic worship. You know, sometimes as Christians, it's almost somewhat of a sad and a shameful thing how unenthusiastic we can be in worship how unpassionate we can be about worshiping God. You, you, you do realize that if you don't enjoy worshiping God, you're really not going to like heaven. Something's a little bit off there a little bit because the reality is the eternal spirit, God says that he gives to us the gift of eternal life, which means that you have to understand, that means that eternal life is already abiding in you. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The spirit of the eternal son of God, the spirit of the Lord dwells inside of you. And that is why you do have this gift of already possessing the eternal quality of life You'll just shed this physical temporary body and get a glorified body that will go along with that. See, the only thing that keeps us from passionately worshiping God, worshiping God right now is this fleshly tent with all our human inhibitions. Things like our pride, our distracted minds, our apathetic attitudes, worrying about what we sound like when we sing, worrying, if, I mean, and, and this is just, it's just fleshly foolishness. I mean, a long time ago, it struck me as just such a strong reality. Uh, you, let me help you. You can go home today, watch an NFL game. Catch when they pan the crowd once in a while, if something decent happens. And how passionately and enthusiastically, if there's a good play or a touchdown, and people will... <laughs> I mean, just, right? I mean, the, the passion and the enthusiasm to celebrate like victory and good things and their enthusiasm for a sports team. And then of course, for all of us, if it's the Eagles, the next play, you may just be, you know, it's like the exact opposite the next moment. But people will do that for a sports team. And, and then, then as Christians, we just, I don't know about that hand raising thing, kind of it's a little bit weird, just, just football, Football has been about a lot less time than saints have been worshiping. Where do you think they probably got there? And, and why is it that we have these fleshly inhibitions? We don't want to worship God passionately. We're, we're distracted. We use the time when singing and worship isn't happening. Oh, that's the grace period where you can slip in late for church before the Bible study. Oops, that steps on toes. But I care about God's honor, not your pride. God's worthy of our worship. 
We don't just do it to get warmed up for a Bible study. Truth of the matter is, if you go through the book of Revelation around the throne of God, there's a lot more emphasis on the singing and the praising and the worshiping than there is talking about listening to Bible studies. Because that's what we're going to be doing eternally. Glorifying God, worshiping God. And we should take this very seriously. This is a major part of what we will do eternally. And now is the privileged opportunity to begin doing it now as the eternal spirit of the Lord is prompting us to prepare what we will do forever. And we will never grow weary of it. it you know, it's something that will continue to be astonished over him again and again. Now, the text tells us here some of the content of this particular worship song they're expressing at this moment. It tells us there, first of all, that they were worshiping him in adoration for, we might say, who he is. Because notice verse 17, they say, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty. That is the all-powerful one with mighty strength, the one with great authority, the one who can do anything. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's limitless in power. He's limitless in his authority, in his ability to do things. He is more powerful than anything or anyone that we can possibly imagine. And they're still blown away as they think about it there in heaven, in glory. They're still shocked by how powerful he is, that there's nothing too hard for him, that he rules over all, and he can overrule whenever he wills or desires to in accordance with his perfect will and plan. He's the mighty, miracle-working God. They also refer to him as the one who is and was and who is to come. So he's the one who is, that refers to present right now, He's the one who was, that is, he has always been. He's the eternally existent one. He had no origin. He is the origin. He is the beginning. He wasn't at the beginning. God is the beginning. So he's the one who always presently is, the one who has always been for all time and eternity, and he is the one who is to come, that is, that who will be the same forever. He is the beginning, and he is the end of all things. He spans all those things. It describes Jesus's eternal life, that he has always been, that he presently is now, and he forever will be. And not only his eternal quality of life, but his unchanging nature is described in that, that he is the one who his nature, his attributes, his love, his power, his plan, it has always been, it still is right now, no matter what it looks like and what's going on, and it will always be and nothing will ever hinder or change that. That consistency of who the Lord is. He's never changed through human history. He's not ever going to change. It doesn't matter what they try and legislate or what group tries to force what agenda in their sick, immoral ideas. He's not changing his rules. He's not changing his moral standards. He's not changing what's righteous and unrighteous. He's completely secure. He's never changed. He is the constant one. He's never different. He's always the same. Though many things do change on this earth, and to live is to see how things are always changing, and though people do change, and those sometimes are some of the biggest disappointments and challenges we go through as well, that people change, the Lord never changes. He is the God, the Bible tells us, who changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Look, this is a wonderful reality as we worship who he is, that he's the rock that is utterly reliable that we can go to in all things today and that we can go to in all the days ahead and you will always get the exact same thing. Our world gets shaken, things change, our own heart condition, we're in this condition and another time we're in that condition but it doesn't matter our condition or the conditions of the world. The wonderful thing is there's consistency with God. He's the rock. How wonderful. Again, these are just two simple things, but how those things, the Lord God Almighty, all-powerful, and the eternal, unchanging nature of him should cause us to worship him for those wonderful realities, just who he is. And then also they're worshiping here in verse 17 him for what he's done as well, because verse 17 goes on to say, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Notice, he's taken his supreme power and will use it to have reigned over the earth. The tense there in the language, you've taken your great power and reigned, it's in the tense in the Greek that's writing about something that's future, but with such absolute assurance, you're speaking about the future event as if it's already done that it's already completed, and you are so confident it's going to be completed and nothing could stop it from being completed. You describe something in the present that's going to happen in the future like it's already come to pass already because there's an absolute assurance to the highest degree of confidence that he will take over and reign. And as I said, nothing's going to stop that. No one's going to stop that. His plan is going to come to pass. Jesus will take control. He will reign and bring total resolution to everything that's broken and needs to be fixed on this planet. As they make this proclamation, I think to myself, imagine how many times in human struggles, in hardships, in our sorrows, in our weariness on this earth, in our difficulties, We've all prayed things like, Lord, just come take control. Please, Lord. Please, Lord, just come take control. Lord, fix everything. Come back. Take over. Things are a mess on this planet. Lord, please, your kingdom come. Your will be done. And look, the wonderful reality is this. That prayer is now being answered. How many times through humanity and human history have God's people cried those kind of prayers? Lord, please come, just take over, take control. And at this set hour, his kingdom is being ushered forward and his will is going to be done. And this is just another reminder to us of how wonderful to know there is a good ending. As I said earlier, righteousness wins. And when we're living through these days right now, and the Bible prescribes that things don't get better before our removal from this earth and the coming of the Lord. The Bible describes, as much as we don't like to swallow the reality, that things on the earth actually get darker, worse, and harder. It's prescribed. Every generation doesn't want to be the generation to go through it, but some generation has to, right? We don't want to be the generation where things wax really, really bad on the planet, but that is a part of the prescribed plan that God told us ahead of time. Look, don't be shocked by it. It's got to get dark. It's the darkest before the dawn, right? And, and, and this is just a reality. But to have that hope 
that blessed hope to understand these concepts of the coming reign of Christ where he resolves and fixes everything and brings his kingdom to pass and throws off evil and every enemy and everything that's resisted the will and the plan of God that's brought such a mess on the planet with humanity to know that righteousness wins and you're on the winning team. It just helps in the midst of the weariness to have that assurance that should inspire us to live in a spirit of faith. Verse 18 goes on to tell us, and the nations were angry, they say, and your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. So is this praise song or this proclamation of giving praise to the Lord continues to unfold there in verse 18. Notice here they proclaim more about what I see here in verse 18, somewhat as sort of the plan of God coming to its completion and unfolding in some of the things that will transpire. It's almost as if verse 18, and I'm not saying it's comprehensive or exhaustive, it seems verse 18 almost gives to us by the Spirit of the Lord somewhat of a little bit of a prophetic outline of some of the things from this point forward that will ultimately be culminating and coming to pass as God brings to fruition the full process of his long-term plan. Notice one of the things that's mentioned here, it tells us the beginning of verse 18, it says the nations of humanity were angry and your wrath has now come against it. They recognize that. Lord, your wrath is now coming against the angry rebellion of humanity, the Lord's just wrath. And this is, again, part of what was happening and is going to continue to happen through the remainder of the period of the tribulation. Notice he says the nations were angry. Why is humanity, why are the nations angry? Humanity is angry in what the Bible is describing there because humanity does not want to be held to any standard, morally or spiritually. They don't like standards from God. Humanity doesn't want to have to answer to God. They don't want to be held accountable for right or wrong. They want to be God themselves. They want to be able to determine for themselves what is okay, what's acceptable, what's right and righteous, and what is wrong. They want to create their own standards, and the world and its population generally have always wanted to live in darkness, to be able to live how they want according to their desires. They don't want to have to account, be accountable to God, so they rage in anger. Why? Towards God's authority. The concept of God, a creator, a judge, being an authority it angers humanity because they rebel against that and what he would require of them. This will be the ultimate fulfillment, really, of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us this. Why were the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And here's what they hear humanity saying. Let us break their chains. God's chaining us. He's trying to hold us back. They cry and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with fiery, or excuse me, fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne and on my holy mountain. 
See, this praise proclamation here is describing this reality as things come to a culmination that the nations that have been so angry in their arrogant resistance to God and, and upset that God would want to be in control of their lives have finally brought to pass after a long time of God's patience in human history the occasion where now it would be unjust for God not to punish, not to bring to pass his wrath. And so he says the nations were angry and now your wrath has come as the just response towards that. And we will see more sadly of the wrath of the Lord and punishment unleashed as we go on in the study of Revelation, these next seven bowls of judgment that will be poured out as God's judging humanity. Secondly, we also take notice, he describes here in verse 18, that it says this is also a reminder that the time of the dead who will be judged. The time of the dead who will be judged. We will see that come to pass further in our study in the book of Revelation at what is often referred to as the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 describes the events that will take place after Jesus comes back to the earth at the end of the tribulation, sets up his throne on the earth and rules and reigns, and the kingdom age or the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ will take place on this planet. And at the end of that time, we're told there will be this judgment where God will execute his judgment, not against Christians, Christ bore our judgment. We're judged according to works and reward. We'll talk about that in a moment. The great white throne judgment is something for the unbeliever, for those who've rejected Jesus Christ and will now basically have to face their sentence, their sentencing for their crimes against God. The Bible describes it this way in Revelation 20 of the dead being judged for their rebellion to God. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 says it this way. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on the face of the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. Notice God keeps accurate records even of our sinful infractions. So nobody can say, I didn't do that. God says, it's right there. See that? Got good records. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life, that's a record of born-again, genuinely saved Christians, the book of life, those who are, have their reservation in heaven, those whose names were not found in the book of life, but instead there's the record of their clear guilt and their sinfulness and re rejection of Christ, those not found written in the book of life were then at that point cast into the lake of fire. So he describes, this is something soon coming to pass. Thirdly, he references the rewarding of believers. Look what he says, verse 18, and that you should reward your servants. So the unsaved dead are judged, and that you should then reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great. So there's a coming time where the Lord will also reward all of his servants, the Bible assures us, small and great. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says it this way, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. 
Notice, Jesus promises in his coming that he's going to reward each and every one of his servants according to what we did in our work and service for the Lord. Jesus rewards, take notice, based upon faithfulness to the calling individually that he gives to each and every one of our lives. No matter what our ministry role has been serving him, whether a prophet or whether he just references any saint, the prophets and the saints, plural, categorizing everyone else there, he says, a reward will be given to them. And then he emphasizes there, the Holy Spirit says to us, both those who are small and great, all who feel your name and those who are small and great. The idea is whether it's some servant of the Lord who's been, let's say, great in their influence. Let's uh, Billy Graham, right? Someone who's had great influence, has great recognition on the earth as a Christian. They've had great impact, a great scope to their big ministry. They've done larger things in serving the Lord. But then he says, also those who are small, that is maybe small in their sphere of influence. They've just had a small little sphere of influence in their impact or what they've done. They're small in recognition. They're not Billy Graham. They're not Chuck Smith. They're not someone who's popular, who's well-known, great in, in recognition. They're someone who, let's say, lives in obscurity. They're an unknown person. They're just some saint who in a very small way has been faithful in the thing that Jesus has asked them to do in their calling, in their sphere of influence, the Lord wants us to see here, it's not the size and the scope of our ministry impact, but it's being faithful in what our role specifically is. That's how we're rewarded in regards to our own personal faithfulness. Every believer will be adequately rewarded, listen, for what you did for Jesus. According to your Christian walk and your roles, and your giftings, and your opportunities. Please be encouraged to know this morning, from, from Jesus' perspective, there really is no small or great servants of the Lord. There really is no small or great ministries. What Jesus looks at is faithfulness in the thing he's assigned for us to do. And the Lord sees everything that you do. He sees everything that you've done. He sees that thing that seems bigger and greater and more grandiose that maybe you're really proud of or that you've done, but he also sees, doesn't Jesus talk about those who even give a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord? He sees those small little things that are overlooked that nobody knows that you've done. The little acts of faithfulness, whether it's your servanthood, just being a good and godly husband or a father or a mother or a wife, the, the things that you do that are somewhat obscure that nobody really knows that you've ever done for the Lord, but you do it because you do it to serve the Lord, all of that gets noticed. And the Lord will reward you for everything. Don't ever think that somehow anything you do for the Lord is insignificant. That is a really, really wrong concept. He rewards everyone according to what they have done. The Lord knows what you're doing. Do it faithfully. He sees it all. He will reward it one day adequately, saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And the fourth and final thing we see that something's still coming to pass in the days ahead, as it says there in verse 18, you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Interesting that one day King Jesus is going to destroy those who have destroyed things on this earth. Well, we know that's definitely going to be the devil. 
the Antichrist. These are some obvious ones. Jesus as king will one day, when he judges humanity to make things right, he will rid the earth of those who have destroyed things on this earth. One day, our Lord righteously will destroy those who have destroyed this planet and humanity with their immoral filth and their perversion and the wrong things that they have done to defile people, to harm families, to ruin lives. One day, the Lord will punish all those who have destroyed things on this planet. Again, can we say, phew, I don't have to be as angry now. Thank you, Lord. I don't have to be so up in arms and get crazy and thoroughly distracted. What are these people doing? The Lord knows who's destroying things and destroying lives and destroying families. He will deal with that. He's going to make that right. And we can leave that matter into the hands of the Lord. Verse 19 concludes by telling us one final thing John saw. The temple of God, it says, was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake. Great power coming there and great hail from the throne of God. So as the heavenly scene concludes now, John sees, notice it says, the temple. And he sees it opened. The idea is with full access. And he sees a symbol of God's covenant love and power there. Remember, God's earthly temple, the tabernacle and then the temple, was always a model, the Bible tells us, of the heavenly temple, the real temple, the temple of God there in the eternal dimension. God gave Moses the design and dimensions for building the tabernacle and instructed him to be sure that he built it exactly according to the pattern that was shown to him. Then the same thing when David got instructions for building the permanent temple. And the reason why, as Hebrews tells us, that the earthly temple was a representation of a heavenly temple and the heavenly thing that exists in the eternal dimension, the true temple of God, and therefore it was to represent it accurately. Notice John sees this heavenly temple, and I love how it describes there, verse 19, it says that John sees the temple of God and it was opened in heaven. Aren't you glad God's temple was opened in heaven? Interesting. The chapter started with a compromised earthly temple made by men that needed to be shut down, that the Antichrist would defile. This chapter concludes with the eternal temple of God, heaven's temple, opened, and the heavenly temple will never be destroyed. It is open and accessible forever, and the reason is because it's the heavenly temple, it's the true temple of God, and even more, it's because it has the perfect great high priest, Jesus himself, who's reigning within it. And interesting that John says that he saw in the midst of the temple there the ark, it says, of the covenant within the temple. The ark, remember, was that furniture item where God manifested his holy presence in the holy of holies in the temple. It was where the presence of God was manifest there at the ark. And he sees open access directly to the presence of God. Why? Because it's the ark of his covenant. It's, it's the assurance that there is open access to the presence of God because of his covenant, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That there is now open access, and look, God's powerful. It's not that God's not powerful. The evidence is the end of the verse. Lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake. But here's this Lord God Almighty of great power, and he offers open access to any who want to approach his presence 
because of the perfect finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. A way to heaven is open for all. Folks, one day better things are coming. Jesus is going to return. He is going to reign. Heaven's glory is real. Let that anchor your soul in hope. Let's stand together and let's pray.